All right, once again, good morning. Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 14? Now, last week in our study in John's Gospel, we did come to chapter 14, starting with the verse 15. Let me read those verses again, where Jesus said, If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Now, as we have been saying, Jesus spoke these words to his disciples in an upper room somewhere in Jerusalem. We don't know where for sure. Uh, you know, as they were celebrating the Passover together. And uh, he told them in verse 33 of chapter 13 that he was going to be leaving them. And that where he was going, they couldn't go with him. We know he was talking about dying on the cross, rising from the dead, and going back to the Father eventually. But in saying this, he was essentially telling them they would have to carry on the work of the kingdom without him. That even though he was going away, or just because he was going away, that it didn't mean the work of the kingdom was going to stop. And of course, upon telling them uh, that, that he was going to be leaving them soon, and they'd have to continue the work of sharing the gospel without him uh, to everyone they came in contact with, their hearts were immediately gripped with fear. Immediately gripped with fear. You know, think, put yourself in their shoes for a second. I'm sure they were thinking, how are we ever going to carry on this vital work without Jesus? I mean, you know, we're just assisting him. He's the main deal, and now he's going? I mean, how are we ever going to continue the work he had begun? And so Jesus, of course, knowing their thoughts, well, this is, he seeks to then encourage them, and the main way he did that was by telling them that he was not going to leave them alone and helpless like orphans. Instead, he tells them not to fear. It's a command in the Greek in verse 1. And then he follows it quickly with a promise that he was going to send them another helper, the Holy Spirit, who would, once he came, abide with them forever. In other words, would never leave them. We're calling this little two-part series the promise of the Holy Spirit. Last week, part one was the person of the Holy Spirit, and today is the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, last week, again, we looked at the person of the Holy Spirit. Let me just review briefly. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's not an it. He's not an impersonal force like electricity that we, you know, simply plug into like we would plug a power tool into a wall uh, outlet and then use it for whatever we wanted to. The Holy Spirit isn't there just to be at our beck and call and, uh, and uh, where we use him for everything we want to do in our Christian life. He is a person. Personal pronouns are always used in the scriptures to refer to the Holy Spirit. We wouldn't do that if we're talking about an impersonal force like electricity. And that's the idea. He is not an impersonal force. In chapters 14 through 16, we see many of these personal pronouns used in describing the Holy Spirit. Further, the Bible ascribes to him all the character uh, characteristics of a living, thinking, and feeling person. The Bible says he can be lied to, grieved, resisted, quenched, and even blasphemed. And that last one is dovetails into the next point about the Holy Spirit. Not only does the Bible teach that he's a person, it teaches that he is God. You can't blaspheme a person. You can only blaspheme God. So when the Bible talks about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, that is implying that he is God. That's one of the scriptures, all right? But even Jesus affirmed this in our text this morning. And again, we're still reviewing a little from last week. Where again, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, he will give you, listen, another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the spirit of truth. As we said last time, uh, the word another uh, in Greek, there's two words for another in Greek, I should say, heteros, which means another of a different kind, and then alas, another of exactly the same kind. Ice is exactly the same, of, is the same as water, it's just in a different form, all right? So in other words, Jesus is saying, I'm going to send you another helper, another one exactly, essentially like me, only in a different form. God the Spirit, second, per third person of the Trinity. And to quote an author from last week that we quoted, he said, when we as children of God stop looking at him, the Holy Spirit, 
is a power to be obtained and start seeing him as, as a person to be obeyed, our lives will never be the same, end quote. All right, with the power of the Holy Spirit, which is what we want to focus in on this morning, verse 16, Jesus said, And I will pray the Father, and he will send you another helper. The word helper is the Greek word parakletos, comes from two Greek words, para, which means alongside, and kaleo, the verb to call. So very simply, a parakletos is someone who has been called alongside for the purpose of helping or comforting which is why some of your translations call him the comforter. Fine to call him the helper, the comforter, doesn't matter. Same thing. Now, Jesus himself was the first parakletos. He was the first comforter who came alongside the disciples physically to help them. In what way? Well, to teach them the truth of the kingdom of God, but also to train them for the work of the kingdom, the Great Commission, which would, they would be eventually going into all the world and carrying out. But then in John 14, he told them he was going away. But he promised not to leave them alone and helpless like orphans, that he was going to send them back another helper who would come alongside them to direct, guide, teach them, and mostly to empower them for the work Jesus had called them to do. Now, on the day of Pentecost, as the disciples were in the upper room praying, and waiting on the Lord to fulfill his promise. The promise was given in John 14. And now they're waiting for that promise to be fulfilled in Acts 2. Okay? We are roughly um, 50 days after the resurrection in Acts 2. Okay? And um, on the Feast of Pentecost, uh, as they were up in the upper room praying, uh, suddenly the Spirit of God was poured out and the disciples were all filled with the Holy Spirit. The evidence was they began to speak with tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance, uh, but they were now Spirit-filled believers. And from that point on, guys, the one word that described them was dynamic. Dynamic. They were dynamic and successful because, listen, they were filled with and totally dependent on the Holy Spirit. Don't miss that. We'll talk more about it in just a moment. Why were they so dynamic? Because they were filled with and dependent upon the Holy Spirit. As we read the book of Acts, we can see how the Holy Spirit directed the activities and ministries of the early church. I mean, they were totally dependent on Him. They prayed about everything. They didn't do anything unless the Holy Spirit led them to do it. And so because of it, we see how that the Holy Spirit directed the activities and ministries of the early church, and because of it, how successful they were in ministry. It's amazing. In fact, as you continue reading in the book of Acts, it records that in the first 30 years of the church's existence, listen, they turned their world upside down for Jesus. Now, actually, if you want to get technical, they turned their world right side up for Jesus. The world was turned upside down at the fall. Things got inverted. Uh, things became crazy. But when we pray with somebody to receive the Lord, their world gets turned right side up. Things make sense again. They have a clear vision of what life is really all about. So, But they turned their world upside down for Jesus in the first 30 years of the church's existence. And think about this, guys. Think about this. They did it all without any formal theological training and without the help of radio, television, the internet, or social media. Today, by contrast, we can see how ineffective and unsuccessful the church has been in our generation in impacting the culture for Jesus Christ with all those tools at our disposal. And please don't point to the mega churches to prove me wrong. Okay? Mega churches, in fact, Christianity in general, I don't know if you've been watching the surveys, do you realize how many professing Christians in these modern times don't believe Jesus is really the Son of God, believe he must have sinned because he was a human being? We all sin. And the more recent one was that a majority of professing Christians believe it was okay to have sex outside of marriage. So you tell me if we're really impacting the culture for Jesus Christ. I mean, you know, people are coming to church, but I don't really think they're coming to Christ, some of them, but not many. Because it's more important to fill 
the pews than it is to touch the hearts with many churches and pastors today. Why is this? Why are we not impacting the culture like we should? Because I believe that today's church is more focused on ingenuity, creativity, um, in developing techniques, methodologies. You know, it's, it's all about programs today. Um, you know, just teaching the Bible, that is like boring. Really? I mean, you know, you, you, I've had people walk in and they look at our bulletin. Study on this day with this group, this Bible study, this prayer meeting. What? Where's, where's the basket weaving classes? Seriously, okay? Where, you know, where, where, where's the theater? Where, you know, uh, and it's like for many people, that's churches of a form of entertainment, you know, and it's a sanctified, you know, Las Vegas. Some churches actually try to be uh, a Las Vegas with the smoke machines and the light laser light shows and all these things. And, you know, as I've said before, let me say it again. The church is not to imitate the world. We're not to be like the world to try to reach the world. That is not only counterproductive to our mission, it's absolute heresy against our God. Now, let me just say this to you. Whenever the church tries to imitate Hollywood or Las Vegas, you're never going to outdo them in glitz and glamour. That's their deal. That's their whole thing. And whenever we try to do it, it just comes across like a sad, pathetic counterfeit. When skits hit the church, you know, I don't have really a problem as long as they're biblically based. But I remember I took a Sunday off for vacation, and I went to a Lutheran church near my house. Never had been to a Lutheran church. Wanted to see what it was like, right? So they had their own little version of, uh, of skits. Okay, of you know how some churches have the skits up in front to prove a point, and they were standing up there, four people, God bless them, and they each had their their script in front, holding the paper, and they were just reading one after another, thinking, "Wow, if you're gonna do it, put a little effort into it, because this is pathetic." But the church is all about. What's going to work? We've become very pragmatic. Whatever's going to work, that's what we need to do. Well, how about you just teach the Bible, fellowship of the saints, getting together to pray, break bread, have communion, and by God's power begin to reach the lost. It's not about, you know, and, and, but this is the thing today. Uh, the church today is depending on, you know, the ingenuity and creativity of, of, of man developing, you know, these techniques and programs and methodologies to build the church rather than on the power and direction of the Holy Spirit. You know, Ephesians 3.20, you have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. Now to him, the Lord God, who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think, how? According to the power that works in us. Not, not according to our you know, little methodologies and programs and things like that. It's all about the Spirit working through the church. That's where the power comes in. You know, A.W. Tozer, you've all heard of A.W. Tozer. You've all heard this quote. Let me read it again. He said, if the Holy Spirit was removed from the early church, 90% of what they did would have come to a halt. If the Holy Spirit was removed from the church today, the work of the church is the idea. 10% of what we're doing would come to a halt, end quote. And I think that's probably pretty accurate, all right? Samuel Chaddick, who was a great man of God back in the early 1900s, he said, and I quote, the church, has multiply, the church that multiplies committees and neglects prayer may be fussy, noisy, enterprising, but it labors in vain and spends its strength for naught. It is possible to excel in mechanics and fail in dynamics. There is an abundance of machinery in the church. What is lacking is power. End quote. And so once again, guys, this leads us to the focus of today's study, the power of the Holy Spirit. Let me start by saying, and, and let me just also say this. Most of you in this room have already heard what I'm about to teach. Because you're Calvary folks. And, and this is something, it's a mainstay in Calvary Chapel. 
But when I but understand, hear me when I say that many many Christians sprinkled across our country have never heard this teaching. I don't know why it comes right out of the Bible. I'm not saying anything that's not biblical. But their churches shy away. We'll talk about more about why in a moment. But let me just start by saying that Jesus spoke of three levels of relationship that the Holy Spirit can have with a person. And these are ascending levels. In other words, they build upon each other. Jesus outlined these levels using three different Greek prepositions, each one corresponding to one of these levels. The first two come out of our text this morning. Again, verse 15, if you love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells, are you ready? First preposition, he dwells with you, the Greek is para, and will be in you. Second Greek preposition, en, en. He dwells with you, he shall be in you. Now, fast forward three days to Sunday, the day Jesus rose from the dead. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew, tw- excuse me, Matthew, how did that happen? John 20. John 20, verse 19. Now, they are hiding out the disciples in a room somewhere, doors locked, because they're afraid that the Roman soldiers would be coming for them next to crucify them. And uh, so they're, they're, they're you know, barricaded behind a door in a room somewhere. Uh, John 20, verse 19, Then the same day at evening, the same day Jesus rose from the dead, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled, for fear of the Jews, that would be just a reference to the Jewish leadership, those that really had Christ crucified, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be to you, or excuse me, peace be with you. Verse 21, As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had been with them. They were saved in the Old Testament sense, though. They were not New Testament Christians until this point. What do you mean? To be a New Testament Christian, as defined in the Scriptures, you have to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Right? Romans what, 10, verse 9? In other places? These guys didn't believe in the resurrection. Jesus had told them he was going to rise from the dead at three or four, four different occasions. But they didn't believe it. And now they see the risen Christ standing in front of them. They are now believers in the resurrection. And now he breathes on them, and the Holy Spirit that had been with them now comes in them. That, folks, is the definition of a New Testament Christian, somebody with the Holy Spirit in them. In fact, Paul said in Romans 8, verse 9, if anyone does not have the Holy Spirit in him or her, they're not Christians. They're not Christians, right? Very important. But then to see that third Greek preposition mentioned, you have to look at Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You might as well turn there. You're in the neighborhood. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus said, he, he told them to go back and wait in Jerusalem, but he said, you shall receive power. Remember I said that? After Pentecost, the one word that described the disciples was dynamic. Well, this Greek word translated power is dunamis. The word we get our word dynamic from, or dynamite, okay? Uh, Jesus said, I'm going to paraphrase. You know, go back in Jerusalem and wait there until the Spirit is poured out. And when he's poured out, you're going to be dynamic witnesses for me. Uh, when the Holy Spirit has come what? Upon you. That's that third Greek preposition. A P. A P. So you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Listen. All Christians have the Holy Spirit in them. Not all Christians have the Holy Spirit upon them. 
Now, I realize we have tremendous brothers and sisters in Christ that do not believe in what I'm teaching, which we're calling the baptism, or actually the scriptures do, the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And they're wonderful brothers and sisters, some of them brilliant people, a lot smarter than me. But I'm just going by what the scripture says. I don't care if you have your degree in theology. If you're going to deny what this, or explain it away, you're, you're not teaching the word of God in truth, okay? All Christians have the Holy Spirit in them. We just talked about that. Not all Christians have the Holy Spirit upon them. This is what the Bible calls the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Listen, which is a separate and often a subsequent work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life apart from, excuse me, apart from salvation. <clears throat> what is the baptism with the Holy Spirit? Well, the baptism with the Holy Spirit is the baptism of power that equips Christians for service. It's, ex it's extremely important to note that as the Lord Jesus Christ prepared for his public ministry, he makes it a point to walk, listen, 60 miles from the Galilee down to the lower Jordan to be baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. Apparently, obviously, he thought that that was incredibly important before he started his public ministry. And um, it wasn't John's baptism in water that he was really going for. It was the baptism that happened after he was baptized in water. Turn to Luke 3. Verse 21, the Lord Jesus is now being baptized. Luke 3, verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, so there's a big line of folks waiting for John to baptize them. When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus was also baptized in water. And while he prayed, the heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove, listen, upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, You are my beloved Son in whom in you I am well pleased. Again, guys, I want you to notice the wording of verse 22. And the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. The Greek is epi. Guys, this baptism was absolutely essential for service because it supplies the power necessary for doing the work that God has called any of us to do for the kingdom. Again, remember these were simple and uneducated men. Now I'm talking about Jesus' disciples, okay? He set the, the example, all right? He needed the power himself. But remember, when we're talking about the disciples, these were simple, uneducated men, as we have talked about. How in the world could they go into all the world and make disciples of all nations? I mean, who would listen to them? How could they impact their world for Jesus Christ being simple Galileans that they were? Well, the answer, God was going to endue them with supernatural power from on high and was going to do the work through them. Again, this is where that third Greek preposition comes into play. He is with you, he shall be in you, and when he comes upon you. Uh, turn to Luke 24. And I'm just pulling out a handful of scriptures. We could look at dozens on this subject, but I think you're going to get the point, all right? Luke 24, verse 49. Now, this is after his resurrection, right before his ascension back to the Father. And he tells them to go back in Jerusalem and wait there. Let me read it to you. Verse 49, Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you. That is the same promise he gave them in John 14 that he wouldn't leave them alone like orphans, he would send to them another helper. That was his promise to them. And now he tells them, I will send the promise of my Father upon you, Epi, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power on high. So they went back to Jerusalem, there they began a prayer meeting. All right, And, um, well, it was the day of Pentecost, which was 50 days after uh, the resurrection. 
But now turn to Acts chapter 1. And we pick it up in verse 4. So they're back in Jerusalem now, uh, obeying what he had told them. Acts 1 verse 4, And being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's the phrase, right? Not many days from now. Verse 8, But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Guys, please understand. These men knew the gospel. They had walked with Jesus for three and a half years. They had heard Jesus preach the gospel thousands of times. I'm convinced they could have preached the gospel in their sleep. And yet Jesus told them they weren't ready to go out into all the world and actually preach it. Not until they were endued with power from on high, the baptism with the Holy Spirit. So he said in Luke 24, 49, go back to Jerusalem and wait until you receive this power. You know, the idea that some propose or profess, the idea that we no longer need this power. You know, they were simple fishermen, you know. They didn't have the seminaries in Bible colleges we have today. We don't need this power. It passed off the scene, they say, at the end of the first century. Again, we have our institutions of higher learning. You know, you don't need that power if you have that sheepskin. They wouldn't put it like that, but that's what they're saying, right? Because we have our Bible colleges and seminaries to train men and women for ministry. Folks, anyone who subscribes to that way of thinking, first of all, that is patently fall utterly, utterly ridiculous. Effective ministry isn't a matter of having an MD or an MDiv, a Master of Divinity, or a PhD in theology or pastoral ministry. I mean, more head knowledge isn't the answer. The disciples had the head knowledge. What they needed was the power to use it. Look at Acts 2, verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them on their tops of their heads divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. What happens? Well, they begin to speak in other tongues as God gave, the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. Remember now, it was, Pente it was Pentecost, feast of Pe one of the three major Jewish feasts of the year. It drew pilgrims from all over the known world. So they were all in Jerusalem uh, when this happened, because the day of Pentecost had fully come, right? And they heard the sound of this tornado. You know, it wasn't blowing lawn furniture around or anything like that, but they heard the sound of a rushing wind, and they able to pinpoint where it seemed to be located, ran to that place, and they saw all these disciples, 120 of these of Jesus' disciples, uh, all praising God in their own native dialects that they were where these people had come from. And they said, these men are, are drunk. Oh, come on. I mean, you ever gotten drunk and spoken perfect French? Or, you know, they... <laughs> You know, people say the dumbest things. You know, oh, they're drunk. I don't know where your head is at, but no, they're not drunk. And Peter stood up and said, folks, these men are not drunk as you suppose. This is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And he talks about it. gives a strong scriptural foundation for the phenomenon that was taking place. Look, I have no problem with uh, spiritual experiences, but you better give me a strong scriptural foundation for that experience. Otherwise, I don't buy into it. Oh, I was, I was slain in the Spirit. Well, you were something. But show me in the Scriptures where it talks about being slain in the Spirit. And don't point to me how soldiers were knocked down when Jesus said, I am He in the garden, because you know what? That's not the same thing as talking about Christians in a church service being knocked over. You know, God knocks over unbelievers. 
where they're trying to uh, come against the, the work of God, especially the person of Christ. Okay? Uh, but that's different from a church service where Christians are falling over. Um, I, that's a different message. But, but Peter stands up, filled with the Holy Spirit, gives the first spirit-filled message sermon of the church age. And the result was they all said, men, what should we do? And Peter said in Acts 2, verse 38, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Or the Greek could be translated, because of the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, look at the wording here. Repent, receive Jesus as your Savior, and be baptized in water. Okay? As a, as a symbol of the remission of your sins. Then, separate, often a subsequent work of the Holy Spirit, uh, separate from salvation. Um, and, I'm sorry, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises to you and to your children and to who? All that are that are afar off as many as the Lord our God will call. This idea that the baptism with the Holy Spirit ended with the apostolic, with the close of the apostolic age at the end of the first century is not what the Bible says. This promise, this gift, this baptism of power is for you, for your kids, but for as many as the Lord our God will call. That talks about all the way down to the church age. What was the result? 3,000 men plus women and children were saved and baptized with the Spirit. Church was born, hit the ground running. And I feel sorry for the nursery people. I don't think they were prepared for this. Okay. What a harvest. And that was nothing compared to what was coming. Okay. But it's very important for us to understand that Jesus, the Son of God, in his humanity, waited 30 years until he was baptized with the Holy Spirit, and only then did he begin his public ministry by saying, Luke 4, verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is what? Upon me, and has anointed me to preach the gospel. I mean, how absurd it is for us to think that we can do anything for God in the way of ministry, without the same power Jesus knew, knew that he needed to, to do the work the Father had given him to do. And guys, I believe that this is one of the greatest needs in the church today, and probably the single greatest reason the church is so ineffective in the world in its work for God. I mean, didn't Jesus promise us that against his church the gates of hell would not prevail? He promised us that, right? Why then does it seem we are losing the culture? war we are lo losing the culture war to the devil well i believe it's because we are trying to do the, not, when i say we i mean the church collectively not every church not every christian but i believe it's because the church in general across america and the world is trying to do the work of god in our own strength ingenuity and intelligence and not in the power of the holy spirit you need to understand something that the three and a half years of Jesus' ministry on the earth were not done in his power as the second person of the Trinity, but done in the power of the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. We know that Peter tells us that. He acknowledges that in Acts 10, verse 38. He's preaching to Cornelius' family. He says how that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him, and the Spirit was upon him. Now, that is how Jesus did the work of God, and that is how we must do the work of God as well, in the same power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you know, I've read this to you before. Of course, we live in the Chicagoland area, and years ago, Chicagoland, under the ministry of D.L. Moody, used to be the spiritual and evangelistic capital of the United States. We pray that that would happen again. 
In fact, we just prayed for it this morning. D.L. Moody was a tremendous man of God. Loved the Lord with all his heart. He was in ministry for 15 years before what he's about to tell us happened in his life. He was in ministry for 15 years before this event took place. Let me read it to you. This is Moody's words. I mean, I'm, uh, I'm reading it out of a, a, a book that was written about him. But he said, Moody said, he's talking about the baptism with the Holy Spirit. He said, I can go back almost 12 years and remember how two holy women uh, who used to come to my meetings, you know, used to come to my meetings. I w it was delightful to see them there. For when I began to preach, I could tell by the expression of their faces, they were praying for me. At the close of the Sabbath evening services, they would say to me, we have been praying for you. I said, why don't you pray for the people? They answered, because you need power. I need power, I said to myself. Why, I thought I had power. I had a large Sabbath school in the largest congregation in Chicago. There were some conversions at that time, and I was, in a sense, satisfied. But right along, these two godly women kept praying for me. Every, every time Moody was at a meeting, there they were. You know, one older, one younger, side by side, bowing their heads, just praying to God like crazy. And then afterward, they would come up and talk to Moody in earnest. They were burdened for him. And their earnest talk about the anointing for special service set me thinking. Moody had never heard of the baptism with the Holy Spirit. I asked them to come and talk with me, and we got down on our knees. They poured out their hearts that I might receive the anointing of the Holy Ghost. And there came a great hunger in my soul. I knew not what it was. I began to cry as never before. The hunger increased. I really felt I didn't want to live any longer if I could not have this power for service. I kept on crying all the time that God would fill me with his Holy Spirit. Well, the author who was recounting this said, Then came the great Chicago fire on the evening of, uh, of uh, uh, October uh, 1871, uh, when one-third of the city was laid in ashes and thousands were left homeless. Moody had preached that evening in, in Farwell Hall, uh, with the institutions which he had founded in rooms burned to the ground, Moody went east to appeal for funds. His board said, you got to go and raise some money. we got to rebuild. So he went to New York. But he said, now, quoting Moody, my heart was not in the work of begging. I could not appeal. I was crying all the time that God would fill me with his spirit. Well, one day in the city of New York, oh, what a day. I cannot describe it. I seldom refer to it. It's almost too sacred an experience to name. Well, the author leaves it there, but I'll tell you what happened. Moody's in New York, okay? And of all places, he's walking down Wall Street when suddenly the Spirit of God falls on him. And he has this experience of such intense joy and love. He happened to know somebody in town that uh, owned a, a, a two-story flat in the upper room was empty, and he asked if he couldn't spend the afternoon there. He needed to get along with God. And so, in Moody's own words, it was such an incredible experience that he actually had to ask God, Lord, will you back off a little bit? I'm paraphrasing. You know, will you, I think he said, will you stay your hand? Back off a little, Lord. Oh, this intense love and joy, you're going to kill me. It was awesome. I can only say that God revealed himself to me. And I had such an experience of love that I had to ask him to stay his hand. There it is. I went to preaching again. The sermons were not different. I did not present any new truths, and yet hundreds were converted. I would not now be placed back where I was before that blessed experience if you should give me all the world. It would be as the small dust uh, on the balance, end quote. The author concludes, the sermons were not different, but the servant was. The truths were not true, but they were now pungent and penetrating. A few had been converted before, now converts came by the hundreds and later the thousands, unquote. Guys, let me just say that if Jesus needed the power of the Holy Spirit to be effective in ministry, and if Peter needed that power, and Paul, and men like D.L. Moody, then who do we think we are that we can live the Christian life and be involved in Christian ministry without the baptism with the Holy Spirit? Now, you might be sitting there thinking, okay, you've convinced me. How do I receive the baptism with the Holy Spirit? 
Well, how do you receive anything from God? You ask him. Turn to Luke 11. Everything we get from God is a gift of his grace, which means we don't earn it. We just ask for it. Luke 11, verse 9, the Lord Jesus is talking. Teaching his guys how to pray. So I say to you, ask. And remember what the Greek is. Ask, please ask, keep on asking. And it will be given to you. Seek, please seek, and keep on seeking, and you will find. Knock, please knock, and keep on knocking, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And he who seeks, finds, and to him who knocks, it will be opened. If a, son, if a son asks for bread from any among you, any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks his father for a fish, some food, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he give, offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give what? The Holy Spirit to those who ask him. Now, because the relationship is established, he's saying your heavenly father, that means they're born again. He's talking to disciples of his. So this is not about asking him for the Holy Spirit in salvation. This is about something different. This is talking to people that are already saved and, and, and telling them, look, you want to know how to pray? This is how you pray. But you know what you should pray for first on the list? You should ask your heavenly father to give you the baptism with the Holy Spirit. But listen, the baptism with the Holy Spirit often doesn't come upon a Christian's life, listen, until there is brokenness. Brokenness. I'd like to share with you um, just a little from the life of another man, then we'll close. Uh, his name is Dr. Walter Wilson. And uh, his little story is recorded in the incredible book I encourage you all to get and read, They Found the Secret. Twenty little short biographies, four or five pages, on different men and women throughout the history of the church and how they were baptized with the Holy Spirit. It's well worth your time. But the author of that book, They Found the Secret, tells us that Dr. Wilson was converted to Christ on a December night in 1896. Afterward, now he's a saved man, afterward, the author says, and I'm quoting, he became a lover, a lover of the scriptures and became diligent in teaching, preaching, and distributing tracts. So he had a heart for the lost. He wanted to serve the Lord and see people saved. Much effort, however, seemed to produce little result and no apparent success followed his labors. This ineffectiveness troubled him. But he was told by other Christians not to look for results, but only to be busy at seed sowing. That's how we get around the power, okay? You know, uh, there's no fruit in my ministry at all, but don't worry about that. Just keep sowing. Well, that's true. That's true. But, you know, so he was fine with that um, little piece of wisdom. Went on for 17 years. 17 years. Until January 14th, 1914, when he heard a message given by Dr. James Gray, who later went on to become president of Moody Bible Institute, Dr. James Gray taught that night on the need to, to surrender our lives fully to the Holy Spirit to accomplish his work. Now, here's what I want you to listen to. Upon hearing this message, Dr. Wilson went home and laid there on the floor of his room, utterly heartbroken over his, fruit, his fruitless life for the Lord, and cried out to the Holy Spirit and said, My Lord, I have mistreated you all my Christian life. I have treated you like a servant. When I wanted you, I called for you. When I was about to engage in some work, I beckoned you to come and help me perform my task. I have kept you in a place of a servant. I have sought to use you only as a willing servant to help me in my self-appointed and chosen work. I shall do so no more. Just now I give you this body of mine, from my head to my feet. I give it to you. I give you my hands, my limbs, my eyes, 
my lips, my brain, all that I am within and without. I hand over to you for you to live in it the life that you please. You may send this body to Africa or lay it on a bed with cancer. You may blind the eyes or send me with your message to Tibet. You may take this body to the Eskimos or send it to a hospital with pneumonia. It is your body from this moment on. Help yourself to it. Thank you, my Lord. I believe you have accepted it. Now, let me just stop and say this. If you're sitting there thinking that that prayer is bizarre and fanatical, it's because you neither understand nor have experienced brokenness in your life for God. And you're not alone, okay? So a lot of folks today who go to church, if they heard that prayer read, they would snicker, they would roll their eyes, they would dismiss it as pure fanatical zeal. And that is because too many Christians are all about what God's going to do in blessing them and not about being broken for the work of the kingdom. I'm convinced that there are many people right now when the rapture happens and they are taken to heaven because we're saved by grace, they are not going to hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. Because Jesus does not say well done to people that were self-willed, self-sufficient, self-focused, he only uses people who are broken, surrendered, and so on. And when they are, they will pray prayers like this because when you're in that place of desperate brokenness, Lord, I don't care what you do with me. I am so tired of living a fruitless Christian life. I'm so tired of talking about power but never walking in it. I'm so tired of going to church and doing Bible studies, but there's no outlet, there's no power, there's no reaching people for you. I am so sick and tired of my walk and where I am. I don't care what you have to do. I only want to be used in a way that honors you and some fruit is born. That's the kind of heart that the Holy Spirit then ministers to and pours himself upon. Well, the author that is recounting this story goes on to say that from that day on, Dr. Wilson's life was dramatically and forever changed. He went on to become a tremendous soul winner, all because he came to a place of brokenness and surrender, coupled with the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Maybe some of you have heard the name R.A. Torrey, Reuben A. Torrey. R.A. Torrey was Moody's right-hand man for years. Here's what Torrey said. The lack of this absolute surrender is shutting, is shutting many out of the blessing today. People turn the keys of almost every closet in their heart over to God, but there is some small closet of which they, they wish to keep the key for themselves and the blessing does not come. In other words, and we probably wouldn't put it this way, but this is what we're saying. Well, Lord, I'll give you 90% of my life. It's yours. I'm going to keep 10% for me, though. Okay? Because, you know, uh, there's stuff I don't want to give up. It's just, you know, so that's a good deal, right? Lord, I'm going to give you 90. I'll, I'll keep 10. And the Lord is saying it's either all or nothing. It's either all or nothing. If, the Lord, if Jesus is Lord of all, he's not Lord at all is the idea. And Tori's picking up on that. He's saying, until you're willing to fully surrender, fully surrender your life to the Holy Spirit, that he might use you in whatever way he wants, you're not ready to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I'll tell you this, though. Sometimes the Holy Spirit, when you surrender to him, will lead you down paths you would have never chosen for yourself but they will bring so much fruit. I was reading an article well, maybe a year or so ago about, I um, hope I get her name right, Bethany Hamilton. Bethany Hamilton? This incredible little surfer. She was a, a, a award-winning surfer, okay? And she was young. She was only in her teens. And uh, she was winning everything. Just a tremendous athlete. And one day she's standing at the end of the, uh, of the pier. I don't know if she was talking to somebody. Just standing at the end of the pier when a shark came out of the water and bit off her arm. I forgot if it was left or right arm, but bit off at the shoulder, one of her arms. She was a solid Christian, okay? But, of course, that impacted everything. 
Now, she was, has such a spirit in her. I mean, this, this, she's a woman. Now, she's a mom. She just gave birth, I think, to her second child. And, and so the story came out, and that's why I was reading it. I remembered Bethany. Uh, the movie Soul Surfer was made about her life. Okay, if you ever have a chance to rent that, get it. It's, it's a great movie. But, but now she was faced with this handicap, and she still wanted to be a surfer. And, and so she would, uh, she would practice and practice at such a determined spirit how to surf with just the one arm. The whole balance thing comes into play now, right? And she practiced, and she practiced, and she started winning contests again. Well, her story was so impacting to so many handicapped people that they would write her letters by the thousands telling her what a great inspiration she's been to them. They, they didn't know how they could go on, but looking at you, Bethany, I've gotten straight, and then she witnessed to them, you know, people were getting saved. She was later interviewed by a reporter. Watch, watch out for them reporters, right? Often clueless, often worldly. So this one reporter asked Bethany, if you could go back and keep your arm, would you do it? You know, you're a Christian. Now, if you could ask God not to have taken your arm, would you have done it? Wouldn't you like to embrace people with both arms, Bethany? Here's what she said. I believe a word from the Holy Spirit. She said, I accept whatever God has chosen for my life. And I'll tell you this, I have been able to embrace more people with one arm than I ever did with two arms. This is what we're talking about. Well, I don't want that to happen in my life. I don't know what's going to happen in your life. That's, that's, that's pretty incredible. It's extreme. God may lead us down that path in some way. He may not. The key word is surrender. I remember a story of a missionary who said, Lord, I'll go anywhere in the world for you except Africa. Lord, please, don't send me to Africa. You know, and the Lord just wouldn't give him rest. It was just really working on him, you know, convicting. And, and it was holding out, holding out. Finally, he's, okay, okay, I'll go to Africa. I just can't take it anymore. I'll go to Africa if that's where you want. You know, the Lord never sent him to Africa. But the issue was surrender. God is not going to let us dictate terms to him. We belong to him. And he is going to use us the way he wants, or he won't use us at all. The idea, though, is surrender, total surrender. So may God give us grace, right? May God give us grace to surrender everything to him, and if we do, watch what he will do in return. Amen? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for, Lord, teaching us that we are not alone like orphans, that we have the Spirit of God who has come now to live inside of us but we pray, Lord, for every person in this room, every person who will listen to this message online, that, Lord, you would put your Holy Spirit upon us. And, Lord, that we would be broken and surrendered before you do, Lord. And that, Lord, once we are broken and surrendered, you would honor that as we cry out to you. That, Lord, you would put your Spirit upon us and use us in ways we, we never even thought possible in these last days. Father, we thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.